It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. It's the Media Buzz Meter with Howard Kurtz. Well, it looks like the travel day from hell. I mean, travel is always difficult at holiday time, but now you've got this uh, storm, once-in-a-generation storm, even accounting for the media hype. It looks pretty bad where uh, 37 states will be affected by these winter weather alerts. 87 million people are under wind chill alerts. 90 million people under these weather alerts. And, um, you know, the Midwest is going to really get socked. Pittsburgh, Chicago, more than a foot of snow. But it's more than just bad weather. It's the fact that there will be so many flights canceled. Today, for example, uh, more than 1,100 flights have already been canceled. So, you know, just at the time, here we are three days before Christmas when people want to go visit their families. Uh, I think there are going to be a lot of folks who either won't make it or will be stuck in airports or whatever. And that's, uh, you know, we've all been through that. And it is no fun whatsoever. Here in the nation's capital, it's just supposed to rain all day. But the temperature is supposed to drop by a total of about 60 degrees. And I'm just looking at a stat here in Denver. Yesterday in Denver, uh, the high was 47. This morning, the low is 14 below zero, just to give you a sense of what's out there. Meanwhile, if you've got a kid who's sick, you can't get children's Tylenol or all these other remedies. It's very, very difficult, I should say, because there's a tremendous shortage, even though there have been, you know, what, you know, months of warnings about a horrible and nasty flu season, the continuing problems with COVID, uh, RSV, you name it. So uh, already we have uh, some of the drugstores putting limits. You go to CVS, you can only buy two bottles. Uh, If you buy it online at Walgreens, you can get up to six. Uh, And this may last throughout the flu season, which is to say for months. Uh, Not as life-threatening, obviously, as the horrifying baby formula shortage uh, of many months ago. But if you're a parent uh, with a kid who needs that, you know, it's not the kind of thing you ordinarily feel the need to stock up on, just as we didn't feel the need to stock up on freaking toilet paper at the very beginning of the pandemic. In 2020, I remember going to a local drugstore and there were a couple of policemen guarding the shipment for lowly toilet paper. I mean, it's funny to talk about now, but at the time, you know, uh, I was willing to do lots of things just to make sure that I could perform the basic functions. All right. I want to talk about story number one because ordinarily when um, there's a big televised speech um, on the air, I'm doing two or three things at once. I'm working, I'm writing scripts, I'm maybe looking at social media. That did not happen when Volodymyr Zelensky spoke to Congress last night. Now, obviously, he had come to the U.S. for a very quick visit. The first time that he has felt able to leave his war-torn country during the 300 days of this brutal Russian invasion, and, you know, it's not without risk, clearly, to get in and out of Ukraine when 
you've been targeted as the leader of the country. Nevertheless, I mean, Zelensky's repeatedly risked his life. He went to the front lines uh, earlier yesterday to thank the soldiers there. But, so I watched uh, the press conference of President Biden, and they were sort of a little bit of joking around, uh, praising each other. Uh, Zelensky, very grateful for all the U.S. aid that has been sent to his country, including, as I mentioned yesterday, this uh, Patriot missile battery that will help uh, the Ukrainian fighters shoot down incoming Russian missiles. But when he started to speak to Congress, and doing it in English, which is obviously a more difficult language for him, showing up in that drab olive green sweater, which was kind of a dressier version of his combat fatigues, cargo pants and all that. I got to tell you, it was riveting. It was just the guy, in addition to everything else, is an incredible showman. And he knew what notes to strike. And when the cameras would pan to to wide shots of the House chamber, you see something you almost never see anymore, which is sustained standing ovations on both sides of the aisle. I mean, when he's first introduced, the ovation went on and on and on until he finally had to ask that it be stopped. You know, really an emotional moment for Zelensky, for the members of Congress who are on hand, and for journalists and those of us who are watching. Uh, You can tell the... uh, Uh, Press wants to uh, further uh, lionize this guy. Political headline. Zelensky's address to Congress puts him in a category with Churchill, Netanyahu, and Mandela. Now, that's actually a defensible headline because it has to do with the fact that this is uh, Vladimir Zelensky's second address to Congress and only very few foreign leaders have had that privilege. But still, you know, it's like putting him up on a pedestal. And Time's Person of the Year just has a way of striking emotional chords. I mean, he came out and said uh, he came out and said Ukraine is alive and kicking. And he said that when the United States gives money and weapons to Ukraine, it is not charity. It is an investment. It is an investment uh, in a land war in Europe that 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 we're all fighting. He talked a lot about the global alliance. Um, He talked about the U.S. in World War II rising to the occasion. He was intent. He talked about Hanukkah and how, of course, Zelensky is Jewish. And he talked about how the miracle of Hanukkah and how the overmatched Jewish people of that era were able to escape uh, with their lives. And so he just, you know, was, was sort of touching all the bases. He talked a lot about Christmas. And at the same time, he didn't sugarcoat anything. He said he needed more. He said, uh, we are so grateful to what you are providing, but we need more. And he talked a lot about the cold, dark winter that Ukrainians are facing because of the continued Russian bombardment of the energy facility. So, you know, here he is leaving a country that has sort of been plunged into darkness, at least in part, and people trying to stay warm, and coming to the, you know, the, the prestigious colonnade of the White House and the marble-encased 
history uh, under the Capitol Dome. And he made a point of not staying any longer than he needed to so he can get back to fighting the war. Talked about the Battle of the Bulge, as I said, uh, back during the Second World War. And, you know, it was almost like he was trying to build up the confidence of the U.S. as well as um, being grateful for all of the aid and weaponry and medical assistance and so forth that the Western Alliance has been able to provide uh, to Ukraine. Um, it was really something. I mean, he wants more planes and tanks and more defense systems and so forth. He's not going to get everything he wants uh, from President Biden. Uh, but he put it, it just, you know, he just has this innate charisma and this, this, there was this aura around him. I don't look, I mean, I'm sure he makes plenty of mistakes. I don't want to engage in hyperbole, but he's very media savvy. And think about all the, you know, because the war has slogged on and a lot of people have war fatigue and to some degree, the news is often depressing, even when the Ukrainians are doing well. Uh, you know, because so many, not just Ukrainian soldiers, not to mention Russian soldiers, uh, and but also civilians and women and children have died under the brutal uh, war crimes of Vladimir Putin. Um, you can't get too carried away. You just can't. But he's acting like he's already a member of NATO. And at the presser, Biden said the American people know that if we stand by in the face of such blatant attacks on liberty and democracy, the core principles of sovereignty and territorial integrity, the world would surely face worse consequences, which is a diplomatic way of saying, you know, you can, we can invest now or we can invest a whole lot more later. And um, I just think that the way in which Zelensky sees that moment to try to deepen the bonds of friendship and mutual admiration between our two countries was remarkable to behold. So I just gave up on working on it. I watched the whole thing. Uh, and I hope a lot of people, who, if they didn't get a chance to see it, uh, are watching it. And by the way, it, it is not a coincidence he's coming now because um, you have the House Republican takeover. Uh early next month, and you have Kevin McCarthy saying we have to audit more closely the money that goes to Ukraine. Nobody's advocating a blank check. Naturally, polls are showing there's a, there is a substantial minority in this country who says we need to spend this money at home. America first, not Ukraine first. And I understand that. Foreign aid is often a difficult sell. But sometimes it makes more sense to aid a country like Ukraine than to have to fight a wider war later on. There was a really striking moment when they uh, at the Biden presser. You know, it's a bilat, as they call it, uh, two questions from each side. So the first Ukrainian journalist who was called on, TV reporter Dmitry, excuse me, Dmitro Anopchenko. And he stood up and I expected, you know, kind of a standard question leading with one to his country's president. He says, President Zelensky and President Biden, First, as a Ukrainian, and I mean it, I want to thank the United States for supporting my country. And you know, my family is in Ukraine, and I definitely understand they would not be alive today if America will not support my country, both politically and militarily, so thank you for this. 
it just it just brought it home. I mean, is that a, a breach of protocol? Is that something that you know crosses an ethical line? In ordinary circumstances, yes. Am I going to criticize this guy? No. Because this is not, you know, you can't detach. Ukraine is fighting for its life. Russia is trying to wipe it off the map. Its people have found reserves of courage. And so here is a piece by David Frum in The Atlantic that tries to analyze the impassioned words of Zelensky. And Z began the speech by saying, so much in the world depends on you. Um, he came to Washington to recall Americans to themselves, writes from. He, he came to say, my embattled people believe in you. Embedded in his words of trust was a challenge. If you believe in you, perhaps you can again believe in yourselves. Talked a lot about Putin, obviously. And... Look, remember when Vladimir Putin was threatening to invade and everybody, all these military experts said, yeah, you know, he'll take over Kiev in a matter of days. Well, that didn't happen. The Russians have had setback after setback, which is why they're reduced to this long-distance bombing campaign. They've had to retreat from the eastern regions and so forth. Um, going back to the Atlantic piece, the Ukrainians fought. Their ferocious and successful resistance surprised Putin. Uh, it certainly surprised the rest of the world. A surge of sympathy rapidly translating to the greatest joint military assistance effort since 1945. The assistance worked. The invasion was stopped, then reversed. The intended victim began to win. And as Ukrainians began to win, all the rest of us, all the other intended victims of Putin's aggression, began to consider that we might not be such losers ourselves. Maybe our ideals were not so out of date. Maybe our institutions were not so broken. Maybe the people the Ukrainians needed us to be, maybe those were the people we could be again. He talked about bicameral and bipartisan support in Congress. Nevertheless, there's an important faction, uh, says The Atlantic, um, in Congress and in conservative media that he says aligns with Putin against Ukraine. I think just, you know, feels like there should be limits on U U.S. assistance. But Zelensky was using words not to describe reality. He was using words to change reality. Hey, let's pause right there. The buzz meter continues right after this. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. I'm Ben Domenech, Fox News contributor and editor of the Transom.com daily newsletter. And I'm inviting you to join a conversation every week. It's the Ben Domenech Podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. All right, let's move on to number two. Donald Trump's tax returns put out by Democrats on the Ways and Means Committee. So this New York Times analysis begins by saying, at first glance, um, it looked like Trump had a turnaround when he was president in 2018. After a decade in which he declared no taxable income, and somehow it's legal to do that if you're a real estate developer, his 2018 return reported taxable income of more than $24 million. He paid nearly a million bucks in federal income taxes that year. So what happened? Did things suddenly turn up in the economy or something? No. And this is fascinating to me as someone from Brooklyn. His year in the black appears to have resulted largely from the final windfall of the vast inheritance that financed much of his business career. 
more than $14 million in gains from the sale of his father's 1970s investment in the Brooklyn housing development Starrett City. It's a massive, massive development that I've passed a million times on the highways. Um, so that was Fred Trump, and obviously that money, that the value of those properties and the rest of his estate got passed on to Donald, and that's why he made all his money in 2018. Uh, there are also questions being raised now, red flags, as you might say, um, involving his adult children. Uh, Trump annually received tens of thousands of dollars in interest income from Don Jr., Ivanka, and Eric, money that stemmed from what his returns described as personal loans to them. The committee questioned whether the loans were actually disguised gifts, disguised to evade gift taxes and allow the younger ones to write off interest payments to their father. I'm not saying that's true. Apparently, it raises the question. Also, the congressional report said IRS looked into whether Trump properly deducted the $21 million he had paid to settle fraud claims against Trump University. Remember this, which is now defunct? A lot of people complained, so they didn't get their money's worth. It was not clear whether Trump had gotten any insurance payoffs from that, which would offset uh, some of what he was deducting. Also, charging expenses from his personal life and hobbies, uh, including... Oh, this is going back to the New York Times is very hot in this because the New York Times, of course, had the leak uh, a few years ago of some of Trump's earlier tax returns. I somehow missed this juicy detail. Paying more than $70,000 to style his hair during his years on The Apprentice. That's a lot of hairspray, folks. <laughs> um, also, IRS considering disallow- disavowing, disallowing, I should say, Basically, throwing out is the technical term. $21 million write-off that Trump claimed back in 2015 for agreeing not to develop much of the land of this apparently sprawling estate in Westchester County, New York. It's called Seven Springs. Uh, The agency is looking into whether or not this is kosher. So, there's also questions here from the previous time story about Writing off payments to consultants, 26 million bucks over nine years. At least some of that money went to his daughter Ivanka, even though she was earning a salary, of course, as an executive at his company. So there's plenty to chew on here. So at the time that Donald Trump ran for office in 2015 and 2016, apparently he was not under audit. Then he was supposed to be audited in all four years of his presidency under a law. In fact, Barack Obama was audited every year he was president. Joe Biden has been audited as president. And here's a woman named Nina Olson, national taxpayer advocate, former, said, I'm absolutely flabbergasted that this didn't happen with Trump. It's very disturbing. It does also lead into the question of whether or not and this reminds me so much of uh, the Nixon years and Watergate and how Nixon's political enemies might suddenly find the IRS sniffing after them, that um, you'll recall this. Um, 
New York Times reporting that the INS had initiated particularly aggressive audits of Jim Comey, the fired former FBI director, and his deputy, Andrew McCabe. Trump uh, told his chief of staff he wanted those people to face tax investigations. Does that mean that's why the IRS did it? We don't know. Um, Senator Ron Wyden calling this a blockbuster. The overall business, that is. The IRS was asleep at the wheel and the presidential audit program is broken, he says. So, it's beginning to be a little clearer as to why Donald Trump did not want his tax returns made public. And in fairness, here's a Huffington Post story. House Republicans are furious. The Democrats have obtained and released Trump's tax returns. Top Republican on the committee, Kevin Brady, said in a news conference that this jeopardizes the right of every American to be protected from political targeting by Congress. Wasn't saying what would happen next year when Republicans will control that committee in the House. But both sides have done this, as the piece points out. Since 1924, certain congressional committees have had the same power as the president to ask Treasury for anybody's tax returns. Back in 2014, when the Republicans ran the House in the Obama administration, um, and were accusing Democrats of mistreating conservative groups. I'm sure you remember that. Republicans wound up publishing private tax information related to some organizations uh, in urging justice to prosecute an IRS official, who I'm guessing is Lois Lerner. Um, And also, you have the upcoming House Republican investigation of Hunter Biden, and one of the things that Hunter Biden has been under investigation for, for a long time, is tax fraud. And he owed about $2 million, and then he got suddenly a $2 million, I don't know, loan, gift, whatever, from a friend, used to pay it off, but doesn't necessarily cure the original violation, if there is one. I think, I think in fairness to everybody, uh, the DOJ should decide whether or not, at this stage, the president's son should be charged. Okay, Elon Musk getting into politics again, number three. He put up another one of these Twitter polls. And he called on Chuck Schumer and Mitch McConnell to kill this major spending bill that I've been talking about, even though it's got the 60 votes to advance in the Senate, even though the United States government will will default on its debt if this is not resolved by midnight Friday. So it's a complicated balancing act. The leaders want to get this passed. There's a conservative faction that doesn't want, that thinks the spending is way out of control, which it is. All kinds of pork and earmarks and um, along with worthy stuff, including $45 billion for Ukraine, including a reform of the Electoral Count Act. I went through all this yesterday, if you want to click on that. Uh, so the poll asked, should Congress approve $1.7 trillion on the spending bill? 71% said no. Now, can I just jump in and point out the obvious? This, is, this poll could not be less scientific. First of all, you're not on Twitter, you're not voting. So it's skewed toward only people who use Twitter. Secondly, it's skewed toward people, toward people who choose to participate in this sort of thing. So there's no, you know, waiting for who's a Democrat, who's a Republican, or any of that. It's just whoever wants to do it. It's, just, it's an online poll. 
Take it for what it is. It's one thing to put a poll saying, should I have to quit? It's another thing to put up a very complex financial question and then tout it as if, you know, the people have spoken. Uh, In fact, here's what Elon says. Senator Schumer, Leader McConnell, the public has spoken. They're overwhelmingly against this giant spending bill. I have no idea if that's true or not, but the poll doesn't show it. And Musk got a lot of blowback, for instance. The public has spoken is Elon's con to try to make sure his word, world God, truth, but it's just a BS Twitter poll. And, you know, it generates chatter and traffic and everything, but in this case, I have to agree. Okay, number four. I don't do much on the MyPillow guy anymore for obvious reasons, but this one is too delicious to pass up. So, of course, you know, Mike Lindell, the founder of this company, huge Trump ally, has been, you know, all on board with claims that he never quite gets around to proving about 2020 election being stolen and all kinds of widespread fraud, etc., etc. Well, now Lindell is embarking on a new crusade, another stolen election that he personally plans to look into. Except this one involves a Republican by the name of Ron DeSantis. So on his online show, he's going to turn his crack team of vote fraud investigators on DeSantis's, you know, landslide win just last month in Florida. The reason? The margin of victory was just too big, especially in Miami-Dade County. The real reason? <laughs> Donald Trump wouldn't mind uh, having Governor DeSantis, uh, let's just say uh, his victory tainted a little bit, his image marred a little bit. But the guy is popular, very popular. And this is not one of those like, you know, Carrie Lake in Arizona loses by 17,000 votes. I mean, DeSantis' margin of victory was huge. There's no way you would ever overturn that. So he's on his show and Lindell had to pause and talk to his lawyer about what he could and couldn't say. Um, And he said, I don't believe it. It's just going to show everybody, just like we always tell you about Democrats, where they stole their elections. I'm going to find out if Dade County, what happened there. And then he spoke to the Bulwark website, saying, look, a Republican hasn't won Dade County like DeSantis did. It's a deviation. I want to find out if there's problems with the election, with the machine, or whatever. He's got nothing, right? He's not even pointing to anything other than I don't think that a Republican governor could win re-election with those kind of figures. And it is rare in the last 20 years, but it's happened before. Uh, Jeb Bush won big when he ran for governor in Miami-Dade. Mel Martinez narrowly carried the county when he ran for Senate in 2004. Marco Rubio as well as DeSantis, carried Miami-Dade this year. But, you know, it's been moving in a more democratic direction, so it's a hard feat, which is why it was all the more impressive that DeSantis was able to pull this off. Now, do I think that Donald Trump called up 
his buddy Mike and said, hey, by the way, I need some more pillows here at Mar-a-Lago. I'd like you to look into this thing and take down to San Peg. No, it doesn't work that way. Maybe he just decided to do this on his own. Maybe they were intermediates. Who knows? But the fact that, that he has nothing to point to other than I don't think this could have happened in such a large metropolitan county, uh, let's just say I'm sharing it with you just for the political juiciness of it. Hey, let's pause right there. The buzz meter continues right after this. And story number five, Sam Bankman-Fried is back in the United States. He waived extradition from the Bahamas. He got on a plane. He's going to face the music, having been indicted for this massive, massive crypto scandal at his company, FTX, which is bankrupt. And, you know, he's, uh, as I've mentioned, you know, this is a guy who utterly charmed investors, celebrities, media people, gave a lot of money to media organizations. And, you know, had been on this sort of apology tour saying, yes, you know, my I lost focus. I didn't have... I didn't have the concentration I should have. I should have put in more time. Yeah, He's managing tens of billions of dollars and we're supposed to buy this that he lost focus. The thing that he was doing was playing with other people's money. So not only is he back to face a trial, but he's got big problems because two other FTX executives have pleaded guilty. And one of them, is Carolyn Ellison. She was his on-again, off-again girlfriend. She faces a maximum sentence of 110 years in prison, and she has struck a plea deal with DOJ. You think that doesn't spell trouble for SBF? You got another thing coming. So, Carolyn Ellison, who looks far younger than her 28 years, was named the CEO of Alameda Research. But Sam Bankman-Fried not only owned FTX, he also owned Alameda Research, put his girlfriend uh, in charge of running it day-to-day. She was facing conspiracy to commit wire fraud, securities fraud, commodities fraud, Conspiracy to commit money laundering. She's waiving any defense. She's going to, you know, turn over all her records. Full cooperation. And another person, as I mentioned, has also been charged. That person, whose name is Wang, also pleaded guilty to fraud yesterday. I mean, this is all being run out of the Southern District of Manhattan. So, one of the things that was reported uh, recently by Reuters is that Sam Bankman-Fried secretly moved $10 billion in customer funds. That's the key phrase. Not his money. Customer funds. From FTX to Alameda Research. Kind of store it there at the girlfriend's firm. Large chunk of that money has gone missing. According to Reuters, 
Somewhere between, oh, I don't know, one and two billion dollars. Bankman Fried at the time said uh, it wasn't a secret transfer. We had confusing internal labeling and misread it. Oh, you know, just somebody like wrote the wrong thing on the box with a Sharpie. Come on. So that saga has yet to play out. I think it's one of the signal journalistic failures of our time. All the organizations that portrayed Sam Bankman-Fried as this likable dude, this do-gooder who's you know, giving money to all these liberal charities, giving $50 million to the Democrats, also has given a lot of dark money to Republicans, but we don't know that exact amount. Given money to ProPublica and Vox, both of which are now saying they will return that, that tainted cash. Um, and so the watchdogs were toothless. They didn't really question how Bankman-Fried made these billions. They portrayed him as almost an ascetic. You know, he uses his parents' Netflix account and he sleeps on a beanbag chair. Meanwhile, he's buying real estate with this money that did not belong to him. So we will continue to follow that. And with that, see, with a podcast, I can just go on and on. I don't have to tell a guest... Okay, you got 30 seconds, and then in the back of my mind is if he takes 40 seconds, the computer can kick us off the air. It's not pleasant. I've seen it happen. It's called a hard break. You don't hit the hard break, you get hit over the head. Thank you for listening. Amazon Music is another place you can subscribe to this podcast without any ads. And we'll see you tomorrow with more BuzzMeter. Listen ad-free on Fox News Podcasts and via Apple Podcasts, and Prime members can listen to this show ad-free on Amazon Music. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, subscribe and listen to the Trey Gowdy Podcast. Former federal prosecutor and four-term U.S. congressman from South Carolina brings you a -a one-of-a-kind podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com.